You've crossed into a space, a dark wilderness as far as the eye can see. Each valley unlocks the door to a new dimension where evil glaciers creak in the night. Unknown beasts lurk amongst the Devil's Club, and cold, cold bivouacs never end. The world you once knew seems a distant past, for you've now crossed into the dark side of the Fern Line. This special episode of The Fern Line is brought to you by The Hoarding Marmot, Anchorage's finest technical outdoor consignment shop located in the Hardest Menard. Looking for climbing gear? Check. Cross-country and downhill ski equipment? Check. Maps, guidebooks, yummy trail snacks, and other essential bits and pieces? You bet. Stop by The Hoarding Marmot next time you roll through town or check them out online at hoardingmarmot.com. This episode is also sponsored by Alaska Rock Gym, providing quality indoor climbing to the Anchorage community since 1995. With over 20,000 square feet of climbing, multifaceted boulder terrain, expanded fitness and yoga rooms, plus clean, spacious, and modern locker rooms, stop by any time to take a tour of the facility or check them out online at alaskarockgym.com. All right, let's get to the show. Welcome to my cavernous and creepy snow cave. I'm Fernline Freddy. It's been a long time since I've had any visitors. I hope you don't mind the stench. I've gotten used to it. As a matter of fact, I haven't changed these long underwear in about, oh, 20 years. <laughs> anyway, I'm sure you're hungry. Let's see what I've got brewing in the cauldron. Ah, a little instant oatmeal, plain of course. Some old chunks of power bar, peanut butter flavored. And let's see, yes, shrimp flavored top ramen spice packet. Just add a little kick. <laughs> well, I wish I had some way to entertain you. About the only thing I can offer to pass the time is this old box of tape recorded climbing stories. Let's see, what do we have here? Challenge of the Western Chugach. A classic story, but a little too inspiring. Hmm, let's see. Ah, Life Revelations. Uh, sounds too much like a self-help course. I'm in the mood for something dark. Let's see. Ah, uh, yes. I haven't listened to this one in a while. I hope you're not claustrophobic. Because this is one of my favorite tales of all. The Snow Coffin. <laughs> so it was late December 1996. I was 21 years old, and my climbing partner, Carl, pretty sure he was 17. We were young. I mean, we were basically kids. And that winter, we'd been going to school at the college in Palmer, and it was Christmas break. We were looking for something to do. We wanted to find a climb that would challenge us. I'm not sure whose idea it was, but somehow or another, we decided we'd climb a new route in the dead of the Alaskan winter up a mountain known locally as Skybuster. Now, Skybuster is pretty legendary in that it's taller than every other mountain in the surrounding area. If you're rock climbing in the summer in Hatcher Pass, you can look out that way and you can't miss it. Skybuster is almost 9,000 feet tall, which by South Central Alaska standards, it's a pretty big mountain. On the north side, which is the way we plan to approach it, the mountain rises 6,000 feet straight out of the valley floor. So it's very imposing. It's a gnarly peak. And at the time, it had maybe been climbed three or four times at the most. So we didn't really know anything about it, other than it was like a 10-mile approach from the road, 
and it seemed like it was going to be a lot of work. I'd say we gave ourselves a 50-50 chance of even making it back there. So anyway, we prepared and we packed, and one morning we got dropped off on the side of the Glen Highway. I think we probably had like four or five days of food and fuel. There'd been a high pressure system for the week previous, so the weather was really clear. But on the flip side, it was extremely cold, like well below zero at night at sea level. It was cold. So we crossed the Matanuska River, which was of course frozen solid, and we put on our skis and we started skiing through the woods. The first few miles, it was pleasurable. Skiing through birch forests, through rolling hills, it wasn't bad. But then you enter a creek valley called Carpenter Creek, and it starts to constrict, and pretty soon you're in a tighter valley that in places narrows into a canyon. So it started to get tough. We both probably had 60-pound packs. I mean, it, it was taxing. We were navigating through thickets of alders, and in some spots, we found ourselves side-hilling above the open creek, where, I mean, if you fell, it could have been disastrous. So we dealt with that all day, and I would say probably by around 5 p.m., we'd gotten through the worst part of the canyon, but by that time, it was getting dark. You know, the winter days in Alaska, they're pretty short, maybe six or seven hours of daylight. Anyway, I think we'd skied about five or six miles, and Carl set up his tent. I think we made a little fire. We just hung out there for a little bit, and then we went to bed. The next morning, we probably got up around 7 a.m. It was bitter cold. I mean, it had to have been 5 to 10 below. It was freezing. I remember us taking down the tent and Carl and I looking at each other just like, this is nuts. Like, what are we doing? But, you know, we were halfway there and we just decided to keep going. I don't remember a lot about that day other than it was hard work breaking trail up an untracked valley with 60-pound packs I think there was probably a lot of bushwhacking and navigating open spots on the creek, but we were young and we were motivated. So I would say sometime in the afternoon, we started to feel like we were getting closer. We started gaining elevation. The valley started to open up a little bit. Finally, we turned a corner and there it was. The north face of Skybuster in winter, 6,000 feet of steep snow, black rock, and sinister hanging glaciers just staring us in the face. I remember feeling so intimidated and at the same time, super giddy. The weather was still clear, but it was starting to get late in the afternoon, so we kind of needed to make a decision on what we were going to do. We scanned the mountain, and after a while, we spotted a line going up the northwest face onto what appeared to be a spur or a ridge that looked like it might be a reasonable route to the summit. So we kept skiing up the valley and we ended up finding a spot below our route to make a camp. It had been so cold the night before that we decided to dispense with the tent and dig a snow cave. Carl and I took turns digging. Probably within an hour or two, we were in our sleeping bags, brewing hot water and eating dinner. I mean, we were really worked from the two day approach. So we finished our dinner and just tried to get some sleep. The next morning dawned. It was pitch black. There had been no moon. It was still bitterly cold, but it was crystal clear. So pretty much immediately we decided to go for it. I had slept soundly. I had a brand new synthetic sleeping bag, which was rated to minus 20. Carl, on the other hand, mentioned he'd had a fitful night. His goose down sleeping bag started to lose its loft and insulation due to all the wetness and condensation. But Carl was and still is a stoic man, so he didn't really make a big deal about it. We brewed up, choked down some oatmeal, and we started climbing. The first 1,500 feet of climbing was up bulletproof snow, 
that probably reached 40 to 45 degrees in spots. We weren't roped up, but with our heavy packs, a fall would have been deadly. So we climbed with a heightened sense of concentration. I remember feeling good, being in the rhythm of planting ice tools and crampons and moving with a freedom and efficiency that almost put me in a state of euphoria. I knew we were 10 miles from the road, probably 30 miles from the nearest town, but I wasn't too concerned. I was completely absorbed in what we were doing. A few hours into the climb, we started to get into some mixed terrain and decided to make a belay and pull out the rope. We started pitching out the climb, working our way through a fortress of towers, never really knowing what was around the next corner. Everything from easy fifth-class rock climbing to icy runnels and mixed pitches where you could stick your tools into frozen turf and moss. It was fun. We did this for a few hours and then looked at our watch. It was already early afternoon, and we'd only climbed a few thousand feet, so we decided to start simul climbing. The next few hours went by in a blur, filled with climbing up ice runnels, corners, where the climbing was hard, but not too hard. But we did start to realize that there was no way we were going to be able to repel or reverse the line we were climbing. It was way too contrived and steep, and we just didn't have enough gear. Sometime later, we exited the face and topped out on the ridge. So we stayed roped up and continued climbing up ever-steepening snow, and it wasn't too long before I realized it was starting to get dark. Carl was leading, we were still simul-climbing, and at this point, we are looking for a spot big enough to dig a snow cave. We're climbing and climbing, and it's pitch black. So we put on our headlamps and just kept climbing. Finally, Carl got to a spot, and he brought me up to him. The slope we were on was maybe 40 degrees. It was pretty steep, and we'd come to the base of a rock headwall that appeared to loom up hundreds of feet into the black of the night. So this was it. I mean, we basically needed to make a bivy right there. So I dug out a stance and started brewing water while Carl started digging a snow cave. Carl was digging, and we were thinking things would be fine, but after a few feet, he hit rock. So he moved down the slope about 10 feet, and he tried there. He's digging, and he's digging, and within a few feet, he hits rock. So we're starting to realize that this is a potential problem. It was 10 below. I mean, it was so cold were soaked in perspiration from climbing 10 hours straight with heavy packs. Carl's sleeping bag has already lost some of its loft. I mean, basically, an open bivy, it's not an option. So it was around this time that I had remembered a book I'd read. I think it was the famous Himalayan alpinist Doug Scott. He'd found himself in a similar situation, and he had to dig a shallow but long horizontal snow cave where he and his partner slept head to head, and he referred to it as a snow coffin. It started to look like this was gonna be the only option for me and Carl. So Carl found an area where he could dig in about three feet until he hit the rock wall, and he started tunneling sideways. I was clipped into an anchor about 10 feet below the cave entrance, and I was brewing water and cooking our dinner. About 20 minutes later, Carl came down to me and he let me know the snow coffin was completed. So we ate our dinner and then crawled up to the snow coffin. Around this time, I think we both started to realize how precarious our situation had become. The rock wall we were up against was perfectly smooth, so there was basically no cracks or any way to anchor ourselves in. So we were at the mercy of this three-foot-wide ledge of snow with a wafer-thin wall to protect us from the elements. And then we realized there was going to be no room or way to take our clothes or our boots off. So we slithered into our bags with everything on, harnesses included, all the while being painstakingly methodical and careful 
not to puncture the snow wall because it was the only thing protecting us from the elements. I remember when we finally got into our bags and we're just laying there and we're looking out of the entrance and we can see the lights of Palmer and Anchorage just faintly glittering in the distance. It was calm, there was not a breath of wind. It was so surreal. And it was at that moment that I realized we were in a really serious survival situation. We had one of those REI mini lanterns with us, the the kind you can put a candle inside of. And I remember we lit the candle to give some warmth and just a little bit of comfort. We covered the entrance with our backpacks and we, we tried to sleep. I remember just laying there, just still on my back, just watching the candlelight flicker on the walls and the ceiling, just inches from my face. And I must have dozed off. I'm not sure for how long, but sometime in the middle of the night, I remember waking up to the sound of Carl just violently shivering. I mean, his sleeping bag was useless. He, his sweat had evaporated into the bag, and it was just frozen lumps of goose down. But like most times Carl suffered, he suffered silently, and he did not complain. I just remember it being such a long night, and as the night progressed, I started to feel this sense of foreboding. It just felt like we were in a bad position, and we didn't know what was above us, and the mountain just dropped off below us thousands of feet, so I just felt really vulnerable. I must have dozed off again because I I woke up probably around five in the morning. Carl was still shivering. He'd obviously had a bad night. And it was then that I moved the pack from the entrance, and as soon as I did that, a violent gust of wind pounded our faces with this granular sugar snow. It felt like being whipped in the face and the weather had turned. It was a full-on blizzard outside. What shocked me more than anything is that Carl wanted to keep going. I remember we'd squirmed out of the snow coffin and we're trying to heat up water in this blizzard and Carl and I just argued about it, just on the side of this mountain. Like, there was literally no visibility. The rock wall was above us and you couldn't even see 50 feet and he still wanted to go. I just remember saying to him, like, dude, your bag's useless. We're gonna have to spend at least another night on the mountain if we keep climbing. We have maybe one more day worth of fuel and on top of it, it's like we're literally in a full on blizzard and it's still below zero. At 17 years old, Carl was a true hard man but he was also reasonable and we were best friends. So after a while, he acquiesced to my concerns and we packed up and headed down. From the get-go, it was scary. The snow was probably waist deep and it was completely unconsolidated. We were making huge bucket seat belays and belaying each other down, basically just feeling our way down the mountain. After a while, I started to sense that we'd been funneled into a couloir. The only good thing about that is that we were able to move simultaneously, which allowed our core temperatures to warm up to where we finally weren't shivering. I think we'd been moving a few hours when it really started to get steep and rockier, and we started setting up some repels. And it wasn't too long until we got to a point where it looked like there was a serious cliff band below us. We peeked over the edge and realized the gully we'd descended had deposited us on top of a multi-pitch frozen waterfall, and it was still a full-on Arctic blizzard. It was so cold, so we just kept moving. Our first rappel was off a rock horn. Carl went first and rappelled about 150 feet to a small ledge halfway down the waterfall. He built an anchor and then yelled off belay. I attached my rappel device and I started sliding down the rope. It was a dead vertical frozen waterfall, probably water ice five on a good day. A few minutes later, and I clipped into the anchor with Carl. 
We didn't have a V-thread tool with us on the trip. Hell, I'm not even sure we knew what a V-thread was back in 1996. But one thing's for sure, we definitely hadn't planned on rappelling down a frozen waterfall on Skybuster. On our rack were just a few cheap Russian titanium ice screws I'd bought from Plate Against Sports a few months before. We'd rappelled off these screws before, but didn't like to do it because the titanium flexed under the weight and it was really spooky to see. But that was our only option. So Carl drilled the Russian screw and we backed it up with another screw a few feet above it and he lowered off. I will never forget the sick feeling in my stomach watching that hanger flex under the weight of Carl and his pack. I tried to push the grim thought out of my mind and a few minutes later, I heard Carl yell off belay. So it was now my turn. I tried to lower myself slowly, distributing my weight evenly so as not to put extra weight on the screw. Even then, the hanger flexed sickeningly under my weight. So again, I just closed my eyes and rappelled down the pillar. A few minutes later, I was at a much more comfortable stance next to Carl. Two more lower angle rappels and we were down. It's hard to put into words the relief Carl and I felt, escaping the icy grips of the Arctic blizzard, 4,000 feet up the steep walls of Skybuster. And I'll never forget our icy vigil in the thin walls of that snow coffin. Carl and I would go on to have many adventures together in the future. But first, we needed to escape our nightmare on Skybuster. So we skied out Carpenter Creek in a single push and we're sleeping in our warm beds 12 hours later. you enjoyed the story. At least it ended well. I don't know about you, but I'm thirsty after that one. Let's put on a brew. Ah, I'm in the mood for something, uh, Argentinian. Yes, let's cook up my special recipe of mate. Three used green tea bags, one packet of beef-flavored top ramen spice mix, and yes, a dollop of rancid dulce de leche. <laughs> Speaking of Argentina, I'm in the mood for another story. Let's see. Oh, yes. I've got just the right one. Hope you like stories of phantoms, specters, and shadows in the night. Because this is one of my favorite spooky stories of all. The Ghost of Aconcagua. So I have been doing speed work on Aconcagua for many years, actually. I started, I first climbed Aconcagua in 2014 and then uh, returned to the mountain season after season after season, just trying to do bigger and faster things. And I was there in uh, the winter of 2017-2018 to guide an all-female team on um, the normal route, on just a regular climb which was serving as my acclimatization to then try and run around the mountain and summit it in a single push and to become the first woman to go and complete that circumnavigation. Aconcagua is the highest peak outside of the Himalayas, but it's you know not just a really tall and kind of prominent peak, it also just so happens to be pretty straightforward and not technical. 
which makes it a very low risk, low objective hazard test piece, you know, to just see how your body performs at altitude and how far you can go and push boundaries in terms of cardiovascular effort. And for me, that was something that as a mountain runner and a mountaineer with a relatively low risk tolerance was always appealing. So I first climbed the mountain in 2014 and then, you know, decided to come back time after time because I just kind of fell in love with the harsh environment out there and with the fact that it's such an amazing proving ground with a relatively low level of objective risk if you go and pursue either the normal route or the 360 route, which is where I've spent most of my time. So yeah, it's just been really a perfect playground for me. Aconcagua is rumored to have the second largest base camp in the world after Mount Everest. And there are a lot of peak baggers out there who, you know, may have climbed Kilimanjaro before or not, and then decide to go after a near 7,000 meter peak as their next objective. And so you get a really, really wild mix of people, um, a number of whom are really seasoned and have a lot of experience in the mountains. And a lot of whom are like, oh, well, you know, it's just a hike. So how hard can it be? And <laughs> Uh, you know, just kind of show up with their um, boots barely laced up and say, okay, I'm going to go and try to climb to 23,000 feet and then um, awake with a uh, pretty, uh, pretty rude awakening in terms of the realities of the thin air up there. There's fatalities pretty much every season. Um, you know, for the most part, it ends up being people who have high altitude pulmonary edema or cerebral edema or, you know, folks who just... Um, end up not leaving enough in the tank to come back down. But every now and then there's also um, fatalities from rockfall as well as from, you know, just regular old climbing accidents and some of the more technical sides of the mountain. For the speed record that I was attempting, um, I had spent about three or four weeks on the mountain already, I had guided a regular climb with just, you know, a regular all-female team to acclimatize. And then once my team went home, I stayed in Argentina to try and circumnavigate the mountain and climb it in a single push and become the first woman to, to go and do that. So I set out, I think this was in late January of 2018, I set out um, at 7.30 in the morning down in the valley in Penitentes, which is the last little ski town, you know, at the foot of the mountain. And I started to run about 12 kilometers on the highway down towards the park entrance on the Vacas Valley side of the mountain. Got to the park entrance and uh, the rangers there actually wouldn't let me in to start with. Um, they said that my permit was no longer valid and that I wasn't allowed to go in and this and that. So, you know, long story short, I was just, I was in the middle of a speed attempt trying to go and do this really big thing and the rangers are stopping me short after about two hours saying, sorry, you know, you're not going to be able to go do it. I was lucky enough to be able to negotiate my way through that and finally they did let me in after a two hour delay. I did make it to base camp on the Vacas Valley side in the evening of the first day, about um, 10 hours or so on the run, and then uh, proceeded to take a short little break and go climb the mountain you know, by myself in a single push um, through the night. So I pushed from base camp at about 14,000 feet all the way up to the summit at 23,000 feet. It was super, super hard, um, super difficult. It took me forever to get up there. But um, I managed to tag the summit in the middle of day two now that I'd been on the move. You know, I started early morning on the first day, ran through the day to get to base camp, climbed through the night to get to the summit, summited I think around maybe 11 or so in the morning. You know, but by the time I got to the summit, I was, well, I was super tired. I was elated as well because I knew after having gotten to the summit, you know, it wasn't a question for me whether or not I was going to be able to complete the 360. I mean, from that point, it was literally all downhill. And I knew that I could just, you know, scree ski down the mountain to base camp in pretty good time. And I knew that even if I had to walk the whole way back from base camp to the road, which is about 25 miles, I think, I knew that I was going to be able to do that. So um, yeah, I was, I was exhausted, but I was okay. 
I started back down the mountain on the other side, on the normal route side, descended to base camp there, took a little break, you know, had some dinner and uh, fueled up on liquids and everything before starting the long hike out to get back to my starting point, to Penitentis, you know, finish that um, so-called 360 route. Right around dark, actually, is when I set out to start the hike from base camp back to the road because I was so tired. There was no way I was going to be running any of this, right? Particularly because it's not like I had a time to beat. I mean, I was the first woman to do that. So it's not like there was an actual record that I was going after. So I started the hike out and um, I was in pitch black and I had to navigate through all of these super fresh mudslides that had come off the mountain in the 24 hours prior while I had been climbing up to the summit, you know, because we were going through an unseasonably warm cycle of melt. So um, it was just really, really rough and really slow going trying to get through those super fresh slides and, you know, not get maimed by all the big boulders that were in those mud flows that hadn't solidified yet. But I made it through and um, eventually I found myself at the bottom of what's called Playa it's this really big, really wide valley that's kind of the heart of the approach to base camp on the normal route. And Playa Ancha, you know, to put it in perspective, it's, it's a massive um, high-altitude valley. It's at about 12,000 feet or so, and you can probably see for, I don't know, three miles, four miles, five miles. I mean, it is humongous, and it measures more than a mile across, and it just keeps going and going and going forever. Now, I was hiking towards Confluencia, which is kind of the approach camp between base camp and, uh, and the road. And it's also right below the south face of Aconcagua. And um, all of a sudden I saw a headlamp appear in the distance. And I was like, huh, you know, that's kind of weird because really nobody should be out here trudging along in the middle of the night other than like me, you know, doing something really stupid, crazy, like trying to go and circumnavigate the mountain in a single push. I mean, people don't do that stuff, right? At night on the mountain, they turn in, they're at camp, they're not moving, nobody's out there. So I keep going and I keep moving towards the headlamp. I mean, mind you, you know, again, the valley is huge, so I have visibility for miles and the valley is really wide across as well. I was trudging downhill, trying to just get everything done, and I figured that whoever was walking towards me would, you know, come and make contact with me. But as the headlamp came closer to me, it turns out that, you know, I was on one side of the valley and, you know, where this person was walking in the other direction was probably a good, I don't know, maybe a tenth of a mile, maybe a little bit farther away. And for whatever reason, you know, that other headlamp did not go and like steer off course or start navigating towards me or anything like that. It just kept marching, you know, up valley while I'm going down valley. And uh, there was no interaction, no, no nothing, no like, you know, acknowledging one another saying, oh, hey, you know, what are you doing out here? Whatever. Um, it was just some lone hiker uh, moving up valley without greeting me, acknowledging me or coming over to go and say anything to me. And I was like, okay, that's really weird. But whatever you know it's not my problem at this point i really just want to get back down to the road and um so as the headlamp moved past me i was just kind of like okay i'm just going to keep walking i did have a really powerful 300 lumen beam on so i could see that it wasn't just you know a light moving through the valley there was a body attached to it obviously and it was a tall guy with a big backpack we were close enough to one another that i could see you know, the person behind the headlamp in the beam of my headlamp as he was moving past. But we were not close enough to one another that like a casual, you know, under your breath, oh, hey, how's it going, would have actually carried, you know, and would have connected a conversation. What was weird is, you know, you would think if you encounter somebody in the middle of the night in a spot like that, like you would go out of your way marginally to go and actually see that person, see who it is, see why they're there and, you know, have a short conversation. Now, 
I had a reason for why I wasn't doing that because, you know, I'd been on the move for 40 hours and I wasn't going to do even one extra step. And I was counting on this other person to come towards me and just kind of make contact. And uh, he didn't. So I kind of thought that that was strange, but again, you know, at the time, just didn't think much of it. The next morning, um, after I had completed the speed record and after I had slept a couple of hours, I reported to the rangers because the rangers had to certify my speed record on the mountain. And so I show up to the ranger station and uh, just kind of told them what I had done. And, you know, they checked my GPS and they checked all of my stats and everything. And then <laughs> I chatted with this lady there and I said, oh, by the way, you know, what you should know is I saw somebody uh, between Confluencia and Base Camp last night. It was really weird. It was this guy who was just kind of moving uh, up valley there. And, you know, we didn't talk to each other, but there was somebody else out there. And uh, I don't know if it's somebody who's trying to poach the mountain, but I figure you guys should know about this. And the ranger <laughs> looks at me. It's this lady who, you know, spoke pretty good English. She looks at me and she's like, oh, yeah, you saw the ghost. And I was like, wait, what? I mean... You know, at this point, I was still totally sleep deprived and I had no interest in going into any sort of conversation about anything paranormal. And, you know, I just I mean, all that I wanted was my record certified and then just go back to sleep and pass out for like the next 36 hours. But I distinctly remember that comment and just thinking, oh, I don't know what these guys are on, but that's really weird and really trippy. You know, that was kind of the end of the story. That was the last of it. Um, I got my record certified. I went home, never thought about it again, ever, really, until about a year and a half later when I opened Rock and Ice magazine and I see this article about um, a climbing party that was lost in Aconcagua's south face and it started talking about the ghost of Aconcagua. I don't believe in ghosts, but who would have been out there and why wouldn't they have come and talked to me? I mean, it just, it doesn't make any sense. And, you know, and then I read this Rock and Ice magazine article and the comment from the ranger came back to me, you know, who was like, oh yeah, yeah you saw the ghost, you know, totally casual. I also then recalled a conversation that I'd had with another ranger who swore that she had been saved by um, this ghost. Uh, during a mudslide event on Aconcagua. And then, you know, I'm reading this paragraph in the article on Rock and Ice that says, you know, there was a 2007 issue of Climbing Magazine that reported that Bender, the guy who died, was specifically referenced as the ghost that haunts Aconcagua's slope and that he was said to appear as an apparition near a part of the mountain called Playa Ancha and that locals knew him as El Caminante or the Walker. And then, you know, it's talking about how Willie Benegas, who has set speed records on Aconcagua, actually did the 360 circumnavigation himself. He was the first man to comp uh, complete it, that he saw the ghost um, exactly in that spot in Playa Ancha at two in the morning, which is exactly when I saw him. So that just all seemed really, really strange. I have hallucinations all the time in ultra races and in really long distance efforts. And those hallucinations typically make sense. You know, they'll be like a rock that takes on a slightly different shape and kind of looks human or looks like, you know, an animal or something like that. I have never had a hallucination where I just see a light appearing out of nothing. Um, definitely not one that lasts for like 15 minutes, you know, because Again, I, I saw this headlamp coming towards me for the longest period of time because there's such vast visibility in the valley, right? And just the fact that that person or that whatever it would have been did not come and at least have some curiosity about why I was out there and, you know, try to establish some form of a connection. I mean, that's just really, really weird. So yeah, I, I don't know. I have no idea what I saw. I do know I saw something and I think it's really weird. <laughs>
Well, I hope you're not too creeped out after that one. I mean, we've all seen ghosts in the mountains, right? <laughs> well, I don't know about you, but I'm getting a little sleepy. It's been a long night of terrible tales and scary stories. But maybe just one more before bedtime. Let's have a look. Oh, what's a good one? Something that can keep you company in your dreams tonight. Ah, yes. Just what I was looking for. Visitors in the night. Yeah, so we we left the car pretty late in the afternoon because our plan was just to hike into the lake at the base of Comet Mountain. And uh, there we were going to sleep and wake up the next day and there are these big rock walls above the lake that we wanted to climb. So it's just a special place. You know, there's very few people and uh, it's it certainly feels really western you know it sort of feels like fairy tale we left the trailhead late afternoon and hiked through uh what's called coolidge ghost town it's a abandoned mining town in south central montana uh, it's full of like these rickety old mining structures and houses that most of them are sort of in heaps on the ground, but there's a few that are still standing. You can walk around inside of them and, you know, sort of pretend like you're still there. They're still there. So anyway, so so we walked through the ghost town. And it's about four miles on the other side of the ghost town where this lake is. And the majority of it's all off-trail walking. You know, you just kind of bushwhack up through these trees and up and over a small boulder field and really really beautiful country and I actually do remember that there was just water flowing everywhere and moss growing on everything and it was just really cool contrast with all the white granite and so we got up to the lake and everything was really normal nothing really came across as being you know spooky or anything we were just out on a climbing trip and my buddy Chance, who I was climbing with, he and I sort of split up and we walked around the lake just sort of, you know, just taking it in. I remember the sunset that night was gorgeous and we ended up having this big campfire and uh, we're hanging out around the campfire and I hear this really distinct sound come across the lake. It's like a... banging on something metal like it's like this clanging ringing sound and chance and i sort of look at each other you think like weird you know i mean we we just walked around the lake there was nothing around the lake and we're four miles off trail here we're, we're in the middle of nowhere montana and uh here's this metal sound so Anyways, we sort of, you know, put all of the weirdness away and we just sort of hang out. And not long after that, there was this, and it, to this day, it's still the most extraordinary comet I've ever seen. I guess it was a meteor, but it, uh, this super bright meteor streaked across the sky really slow, you know, and it sort of like lit up all the mountains all around us. It was really beautiful. And uh, about five minutes after that, the metal clanging started up again. And this time it was persistent. It was like, it just like kept going. And, you know, so we're kind of standing up and I think one of us, you know, was like, hey, there is nothing, nothing on the other end. And so... We sort of walked around the lake at this point, you know, it's fully dark and we're kind of trying to walk around a little ways on this lake to see if we can see something. And 
there's nothing there but the metal clanging is still going and it's been it's been like minutes at this point you know and so we're like okay like don't don't freak out you know it's it's like you know just trying to play it cool we're like man like what do we what are we gonna do i mean nothing you know like you have to you stay there and you you act like it's not happening and so we did and uh after a while the metal clanging stopped and i think that's when chance and i sort of took it as our cue to go to bed and so we laid down and right as i'm falling asleep like a few minutes after i had actually dozed off i'm woken up by this like violent clatter of it's like a whole bunch of it's like a canvas bag full of metal pots was just dropped on a boulder like right outside the tent so we jump up we're both we're both just feeling you know absolutely terrified we get out the tent there's nothing there nothing's moved nothing has nothing has changed and so we were like man okay okay like at this point we're starting you know we're i think we were i was maybe like 19 and chance was 18 or maybe we were a year older than that but you know at this point we're we're kind of freaking out we're like oh my god like what is you know what is this So we we did in fact arm ourselves with the large. We each had a number three, you know, like the largest cam that we had on the rack. So we lay back down. We're like, okay, it's fine. It's not a big deal. And uh, unable to sleep. And there is obvious like bipedal footsteps circling the tent. Like you can hear you can hear the footsteps in the dirt, you know? There's no wind, there's there's no other sound, there's just these footsteps. And so Chance and I look at each other and we decide we're, you know, we can hear them circling the tent. And we decide, you know, like maybe this is, in my head I'm thinking this is some, you know, this is backwoods Montana. There's There's some weird people that live in backwoods Montana. So I was like, maybe this is like maybe there's some hermit that lives up here that's just angry with us you know and trying to scare us and so we kind of whisper really quietly and we're like okay we just we decide on the count of three we're gonna unzip the tent shine the flashlights exactly where we hear the footsteps jump out and whatever or whoever it is we're gonna attempt to intimidate them you know chance and i are both like (laughs) we're not even five foot six you know we're like both pretty little guys so it's like yeah good luck but anyway so so we count to three we jump out the tent and again there was just nothing there and nothing like we we looked around and again nothing had been moved there were no like strange tracks in the dirt around the tent. There was just nothing. And so that was, that was the end of it that night. We, after that, there was no more sound. There was no, no more anything creepy. So we woke up the next day and we climbed a new route and we ended up naming it Visitors in the Night. And we still don't know who who or what or, you know, anything about it. And actually, I hadn't told the story around him in a couple of years, and I had kind of thought that I made up a whole bunch of it in my head, you know? You know how that happens over time? You sort of, like, make stuff up in your head. And then last year, last summer, uh, I was around him, and I, I brought it up. And I told the story to some friends that were with us, and... I said, is that how you remember it? And he's like, dead on, man. Like, that is exactly what happened, (laughs) you know? So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it was. But it, like, deeply freaked us out, you know? (laughs) Like, so, yeah, so we just just hiked, hiked out the next day. 
he went back to Bozeman, I went back to Missoula, and we actually didn't really climb together for the next couple of years. Not for any reason, but just because we just sort of took different paths for a little bit, you know? But, um, yeah, that was, that was pretty real, like, real, <laughs> you know? I, I will not ever go camp there again, ever, you know? Like, I have no interest in ever spending another night out there. <laughs> After that, it was just, it just was too unsettling. It just messed with me, you know? I don't want to believe that it was, you know, like some some humans that used to live at the mine that, you know, whatever died up there or something. I don't know. I, I don't believe in ghosts, but I honestly don't have any other explanation for anything that happened, you know? Hey, what's up, everyone? I hope you enjoyed this first of hopefully many more Tales from the Fernline episodes to come in the future. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review over on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and make sure and tell a friend. I want to give a special thank you to Sunny Stroer for sharing about her encounter with the ghost of Aconcagua and also Justin Willis for sharing about his truly terrifying night under the shadows of Comet Mountain. Yikes. Finally, I want to give a huge shout out to all my Patreon subscribers and a special thank you to Leo Franchi for supporting at the executive producer level each month. Thanks again, everyone. Please stay safe and we will see you next time on the Fern Line. Peace. <laughs>